All right, this one's going to be a long one. So hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Greg White. Jason Pridmore is on the line. It's the Greg's Garage Pod presented by Bike911.com. Jason, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. we got a special guest on. Oh, you know, my and he, favorite. He knows his business. We're going to bring him in in a second. But I mentioned that this podcast is presented by Bike911.com. That is your source. I guess we really have to kind of qualify it, don't we, in the United States, because I don't think that Alex does business overseas does he because we're talking to an international celebrity steve english going to join us later but what do, you, what do you think i mean uh i'm sure alex should i mean you have to be licensed to do stuff overseas and all that but i guess he goes back and forth to russia i know that he does but that's because his family but nonetheless if you are in a situation where you want to talk to someone who's a motorcycle rider who understands your plight if you've been in an accident or if you need some advice on contracts or whatever Go to bike911.com. Alessandro Asante will handle you. Tell him you heard it here. And thank you so much, bike911.com, for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about MotoGP, Silverstone, 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 I don't know, whatever you British people say. We're going <laughs> to preview this weekend's World Superbike. We're going to talk a little pro motocross. And as I mentioned, our special guest is Steve English from World Superbike. We'll bring him in in a second. Uh we're going to start you off with some news, of course. But hey, if you want to support the channel, it's patreon.com slash Greg's Garage TV. Go there. When the season ends, we're going to have some exclusive content, long interviews and stuff, and all kinds of nifty stuff, I think. Um, you want to follow Greg's Ride of the Races, which kicks up again, Jay, next week. I mean, we're like mm. a week and a half away from heading off to our penultimate round of the season. You got all the easy rides now. Now, now, now you've got the easy rides. Well, we'll see because, like, I got to go up the one to take a ferry. Rain. Is it going to rain? Tell me it's going to pour on you. That's what you get for doing this stupid shit. I don't know. How dare you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're just jealous. You're jealous because mm. your ass doesn't hurt after a week. Mm-mm. And, uh, yeah, so so do that. All right? So what do you think? Should we just jump right to the news so we can get Steve yeah, in here? Yeah, do it. Yeah, All right, yeah. so let's welcome in Steve English now because I'm going to do the news and I want Steve's comments on some things. So hi, Steve English. How are you? Hi, guys. How's it going? Good. Where are you, Steve? Uh, well, I'm over in France at the minute, but I have to say, Greg, I think one of the most important things for me is I might need Alex's number because I've got a lot of outstanding violations in Texas that maybe he can do something about for me. Dude, is, France, is France not the worst? So a couple of years ago, I was over there during the, the spring classics to go to the Paris-Roubaix. We went to Belgium, picked up bikes from Ridley Bikes and everything. And I'm driving in France and I see these weird signs with like a camera and stuff on it. And I'm going, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going a couple couple mile an hour faster. And then I realized like four into it that they're, they're cameras, they're speed cameras. Oh, yeah. And I was blowing through them like nothing. The only thing that saved me was... Is that I rented the I rented the car in Belgium and not in France, I think, because I never saw a ticket. Mm. Was that what you're talking about? The biggest problem here, right, you, you get done by them, but no no one pays them fines. That's all right. But there's oh, really? so many policemen with guns on the side of the road. I, I remember oh, one year there? for I was down for the Monaco Grand Prix. It would have been twenty twelve or twenty thirteen. Rented the car anyway, and I came out from Nice to drive across and I'll be honest, I was actually only doing like eighty five in an eighty. I wasn't being particularly bad. Hell, I got stopped like six times, and they were all two hundred dollar, two hundred euro fines. Like, oh, I was wait, like oh, talking K God. or mile per oh, hour. Eighty. No, you're talking I was, five. I was eighty five no. kilometers an hour. So you know, fifty five miles an hour. Yeah, wow. that's like two and a half miles an hour over the speed limit. Yeah. Three miles an hour, whatever it is. Yeah, and wow. if you believe, if you believe that's all I was doing, Greg, I'll tell you what. Oh, yeah, I believe right. it, Steve. Yeah. Anything that comes <laughs> out of your mouth is yeah. pure gold to me. Yeah, absolute He's, pure gold. 
All right, well, let's let's do the news presented by Arai. All right. All right, so Steve, I don't know if you know this or not, okay? But Arai helmets are lined with some antimicrobial material. Yeah, it's true. The inner liner gives you odor resistance, there's dirt resistance, and those antimicrobials that you love so much, you can stay fresher longer and enjoy a comfortable ride in the latest Arai helmet. So check out AraiAmericas.com. Pick what you like, head down to your local dealer for fitment, and grab a new lid while you're there. AraiAmericas.com. Because you love your antimicrobials as much as I do, Nolan Lampkin. All right. (laughs) Steve doesn't even answer. I asked you a specific question. The news is, let's start off with Maverick Vinales, people, because it was announced this morning, Wednesday, that Maverick Vinales will be replacing Salvadori as the factory rider for the rest of the season. He's been testing the motorcycle in Mizano. He went 33 flat his first day. He goes 32.8. To give you some perspective, people, 2018 race lap record is a 32.678 by Andrea DeVizioso. That's on a very fast Ducati. In 2019, the last time we raced at Mizano, Vinales was on pole at a 32-2 pole position. And the fastest lap of the race, Steve English was a 33-3 after going 32-8 yesterday. The fastest outright lap is Lorenzo in 18 at a 31-6. So, Jason, Steve, I don't care. What do you (laughs) make of this whole Maverick Vinales situation? Go ahead, Steve. Do it. All right. Well, I want to hear. I, I, no, I was going to give JP the JP the line for that, but um, it is for his me, podcast. It is, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'll jump in. But uh, for me, it's it's remarkably impressive to jump in like this for Vinales, mainly because there's so many questions about why it's all transpired the way it did. I think the biggest thing is obviously Aprilia need a top rider. He can go and do a good job. Now he's got the confirmation that the bike is going to be good. I think everyone knows that the bike is good because. Other than Aleish coming into the British Grand Prix weekend, who thought he was the top three rider in the world? You know, there's no one putting their hands up to say that. And suddenly he's able to get a podium. He's had, you know, top six, top seven finishes this year. He's finishing within a few seconds of the of the race leader. So it makes it an appealing bike. You put Vinales on it and uh, you could end up doing really well. So to be as fast as he was after only a day and a half testing is impressive. But let's wait and see what he's like whenever he turns up on the bike in Aragon. Jason, well, I agree with everything you say there. I think that in from a perspective of not being in any MotoGP paddocks, the Aprilia this year definitely has made a step only because when you look at Alicia's lap times and his overall lap times uh, or race distance, he's definitely been a lot closer. And we've had so many different people on the podiums this year. I think it's, it's hard to say you know, who we think is a top three rider at all anymore in MotoGP because the competition's so close. Like, when you look at how close people are finishing to, to each other, um, I think that Alesh did a good job. I thought it was great seeing him battle hard at the end there, too, and really trying to keep that position against Miller at the end of the race. But you're exactly right. He's really been the only one on that bike for the last three years or four years. What's he been there for? Seven? But really, the last three years, the bike's only gotten better to me, I think. Um, but now you got Maverick on it. I agree with you 100%. Doing the lap times on a test day when there's nobody else there is one thing. Doing the lap times when there's a group of people on the racetrack and seeing where the deficiencies are on the bike um, will be interesting to see how Maverick does then. I think for me, what I find most interesting about it isn't even Maverick. I think it's just the process that Aprilia are going through. I think hiring Rivoli to run the operation has meant that they've gone outside of the norm. They've done things that, you know, 
show the importance of management structures. Because when you look at Suzuki, why, what are people talking about with Suzuki this year? It's like, what they, are they doing? They need, they've lost Brevio and they've got they seven guys that are running the show. They need someone to come in. That could be Supo. That could be, I think, Zeelenberg was mentioned. There's been a host of names mentioned with it because you need to have someone where the box stops. You and Aprilia have that now with Rivoli and they're able to put Albessiano back into a technical role. They've been able to hire the right people across the board as engineers and now they can go out and spend big money on bringing in a top rider because up until this point, they didn't need one. What difference was it going to make to them? They could yeah. have put Mark on that bike and it wasn't going to make a big difference to them. Now they're close enough that they just need that top guy that could unlock that a little bit more. Yeah, and I think what it does too is it unlocks the change for a lot of other riders. They're going to get to see really, you know, I'm sure within the paddock, a lot of the riders rate Alesh to a certain level. After he puts it on the podium, they've probably got more respect for him. But now you've got a guy that's a race-proven winner this year on that motorcycle. And for Aprilia, they got to have some excitement over there in that garage. I mean, you could see how happy they were with one podium. But I, you know, we're going to, I guess we're really going to see with Vinales, the mental, if it's a mental strength thing for him, see how he actually does. I mean, the fact that they're throwing him on right away, because uh, I think he wasn't supposed to race to Mazzano. Now he's coming back. Now he's coming to Aragon and what next weekend. So he's got to love the bike. He's probably highly motivated too. I mean, you can only imagine how motivated this guy is to go and kind of stomp it to people. And he would love to go out and beat Quattararo on this bike. You got to think. Well, what I thought was most interesting about all of the process of the last two days and what's come out from Italy was that Vinales was told, right, we've got some new parts. We want to put them on your bike, get some data on it. And he apparently said, no, I don't want that. I want to just have the same bike as Aleish has, get myself up to speed and up to his speed, and then we can start throwing parts at me. So he wasn't looking at it from a perspective of, let's try and get something developed for 2022. He's looking at it from, I need to be able to be at my best by the end of this season to then build for next year, which I think is a good attitude for him to take considering that there's been so many questions about his mentality and his mental approach over the course of the last year that I think it's really good to see him take that little little bit of a different view just to try and get himself back to that level. Do you mm. know how close – I got a question for you, Steve. This is one I was thinking about last night. Are Dovi and Vinales close at all? Do you know at all? I mean, are they are they friends? Are they whatever? I have no idea. Yeah. I just found it really funny that it's like this whole thing kind of went real sideways for Vinales, what seemed to be – kind of quick his actions there at race the first weekend in Austria. But it's it's almost like Doby goes and rides the bike. There was already talks about Maverick going there anyways. Doby Millet maybe tells him, hey, this thing is really, really, really good. So Vinales got to a stage where it's like, I don't care if they fire me or don't fire me or whatever. I'm going to go get on this thing. It all seemed to happen really, really quick. And you almost got to wonder if there was talks about getting him out of the contract early anyways. I didn't think he was going to get back on the bike after that video came out of him. Greg and I talked about it on the podcast. I said, what's Yamaha's motivation for putting him back on that bike? But this thing, in this day and age, you just can't imagine things like this happening within 11 days sort of thing of him getting fired and being on another brand bike and coming back to the championship. I mean, it's unprecedented. I can't think of anybody else that's ever had that happen. So I was wondering if maybe Dovey had something to do with like, hey, this bike's really good. Well, I'll tell you what, if you thought the bike was really good, would you give it up? No. Exactly. Well, no, like, so, you mean like Dovi like giving well, it Davizioso up? Well, Davizioso is now tied to another program, isn't he, Steve? Like, I but, think, the, like I, I think that he, I think Davizioso is tied to the Patronus ride for next year, right? Yeah, he's so going to jump on it from the next round as well. I think. Well, at least from Mazzano, anyway. It's in the okay. next two rounds he's jumping on, which then also shows you that 
like like you said, JP, once that video came out, you were past the point of no return for Vinales. Yep. You're just going through the motions, knowing that the lawyers are going to get involved and no one wants to give them extra ammunition. So everyone says the right things for a week. Yep. The real right thing that was said was Lynn Jarvis clearly went down to Aprilia once it was pretty clear that Vinales was going there and then said, how about we let him out of his contract so that Yamaha don't have to pay him €2 million Euros or yep. whatever the balance of yep. his contract was. And how about you let Davi out of his contract because we want him for next year and we want to put him on the bike for the rest of this year. So this mm. like, there's too much of a coincidence for all those things to happen without <laughs> it clearly being 100% by design. Davi wanted to test the Aprilia. He wanted to see if it was good. But Davi wasn't a test rider. Davi was assessing whether or not he wanted to take on that bike. He had no, yeah. he had no role with Aprilia. Aprilia had a role with Davi. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting sequence. I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting sequence. But I, I think the thing too, though, Dov- is Dovi even going to Yamaha will be interesting. Well, that's the thing. I mean, once once results happen, once people get in the races and results happen, how this whole thing happened is kind of inconsequential anymore. It's yeah. just fodder for people to yakety yak. But if Vinales comes out and puts this thing straight away on the box in convincing style, or or who knows, even wins the race, then how it got there is kind of like, all right, this is the situation we're in now. Yeah. Uh, we could talk about this stuff forever, but let's yeah. move on to our second topic here in news, which is um, Ducati's Michael Rubin Rinaldi is staying put at the factory team, Ducati team for next season. Um, and he'll be alongside Alvaro Batista. And since we're have Steve here, what do you think about that? I mean, there's so many rumors and so many m- positions, people moving teams and doing all this ruckus for next season in World Superbike. Mm-hmm. This was just a confirmation piece from yesterday. Yeah, and this was one of those things that was always going to happen that way because why would Ducati move away from Rinaldi? He's cheap, he's Italian, they've developed him, and he's won races on the bike. So he's sixth in the World Championship as well. I think it's easy to look at him and think that he's nowhere. But at the end of the day, he's still done a pretty good job all the way through. He's battling it with Lowe's, Locatelli, Gerloff, and himself for finishing fourth in the championship, which it might be the best of the rest. But right now there is a clear line between the team leader at Ducati, Yamaha and Kawasaki and the rest of the field. And I think Rinaldi's doing an acceptable job, not a great job, but he's been able to show enough to show that Ducati can can afford to keep him for another year. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that having him for a second year, myself, I I think that there's, you know, he's done well at Aragon, he's done well at Mizano. Other than that, he's off the back. You don't really see him much. I think when it comes to battling with those guys, I, you know, again, you're in that paddock. You see it a lot more. I just don't see him up there as often. Um, it's a, it's a weird thing to me because, like this Bassani kid, and, and and I mean, literally, Steve, this guy came from nowhere from me, me and Greg's eyes. Like I started seeing him, and you and I have talked about it a little bit, but he's been really impressive um, with what he's done this year. I mean, I if I feel like whenever I turn it on and I'm watching it, he's always a tick better than Rinaldi. Like he's always just ahead of him. And um, I think that he's, I think that kid's pretty sharp. Rinaldi, we got to remember, has been around forever. I mean, he was riding stock, the stock thousand championship. I think he won it. What year did he win it? 18? Yeah, probably around that 17, 18. Yeah, 17, 18. So it's, it's, it's not like he just, just kind of showed up. And with the exception of two tracks, I just haven't seen him do much anywhere else. And I think that the whole, I mean, we could do a podcast on this. I would love to get all of your honest views on it is, the Ducati, the Ducati thing just blows me away. It just it boggles me. Obviously, something broke down pretty heavily between Redding and, the, and, and Ducati. You know, It seems like if you criticize the bike, you criticize anything, you're automatically out. They think their bike's the best bike out there. Um, but that it is said, the best bike out there, though. 
I, 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 I don't know if I, I mean, I agree to this. I agree and I disagree. I think I you're think, 100% I think right. there is a better all around motorcycle. I think yeah, the Ducati's I think all the three best bikes bike. are really good though. They've yeah, caught but I think that, the, that bike in 2019 was head and shoulders above everything else. And the guy they've just signed to put it on choked the championship away. Maybe the most in history ever. Now we're two years down the line. Everybody's caught up. And I think that it's, I, I think it's, still a really good bike but i think yamaha and kawasaki have caught up a lot well mm. i would say the one thing about it is this year in terms of total packages top rack mm-hmm. and the yamaha is the best package out there mm-hmm. i still think if you put batista on that ducati that ducati can do things that none of the other bikes can do and mm. i think that's what's going to be interesting next year to see whether the bautista that showed up for the first five rounds of 2019 the first four rounds of 2019 is the one that shows up at the start of next year or whether it's the guy that finished that year or the one that we've seen just pretty much do nothing on the Honda for the last two years. And I think that's where you get your clearest indication that the rider is an important part, but he's the final part of the package. And Bautista came in and you had everyone saying how amazing the rider he was for those first four rounds because he was he was utterly dominant. There's no question about that. He was unbelievable. He did things that we've never Unreal. seen riders do. It was like 11, like 11 races in a row or something? 11 in a row. He won some by 20 seconds. One race got cancelled or something? Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> He yeah. probably he probably would have thought he had a half chance in the snow as well at Aston that year, but it was, <laughs> yeah. it was it was one of those ones where on the Honda have we seen anything like that? No, not even so close. So that that shows that the rider can unlock those final few percentages, but you need to actually get it in the ballpark now. I think that's where Superbikes is different now than it was ten years ago, where you could have had it at different weekends where you know a rider just manages to hook it all up and they're able to outperform their bike and get great results. I think now we're at the point where everyone's so finely matched at the moment that the rider is just that last step. And I think that's where, you know, Honda were missing that over the last years because their bike isn't good enough. Their bike isn't developed enough around the superbike regulations, probably because the team comes from a Grand Prix perspective where you can engineer solutions, whereas in superbikes, you have to find solutions. You know, you can't can't suddenly make a a chassis that's more flexible. You You can only stiffen it. Yep. So they're looking at it from the perspective that they want to be able to do things with the bike that legally they're not allowed to do. So mm. that's kind of clearly been something that's drawn Honda back over the course of the last few years. And that's where I think bringing in the people that they brought in to start the project, and they're all great engineers, but they all come from a very different background and they got rid of anyone that had real superbike knowledge. That, I think that's where hiring Camier is good for them because he will increase that. But they also now lose Bautista, who's a proven race winner in, in the championship, which you know could be an interesting one because maybe that helps them push the program forward. Who do you yeah, put on that bike? I, who do you crazy. think, Steve? Jason, who do you who do you put on that bike? I who put, wants to go who wants to get on it? I tell you what, Kanye, whenever you've what? seen Alvaro get get paid uh, you know one and a half million quid get, for the last two years, take the money a lot aside. of riders want to get paid. <laughs> take take the money aside though, like it's you're in that boat again where a Honda hasn't shown anything. Honda isn't the Honda that we remember from 10 and 20 years ago that are like the big H was head and shoulders above everything else. I mean, now you look at their MotoGP project and you look at them on World Superbike. Honda's like the third, fourth, fifth rated best bike out there. Oh, things so bad it's, to it's, watch, it's so ins- ride. It's so crazy. This you know, When I was a kid, it was Honda was everything. I mean, if you were going to get to ride for Honda, that was the dream. And now that was like, like four years into the first petrol motors when Jason was a kid. So, uh-huh. you know. No, but the thing is, as you look at it, it's the fall of what Honda actually is now is pretty incredible because they don't really dominate anywhere or anything anymore. Well, I think that's what's interesting is that 
you've obviously had it where Honda UK used to run the operation back mm-hmm. whenever it was the Edwards team, Castro Honda days. That was Neil Tuxworth, all those guys running yep. the situation. They're now running the BSB operation. Where's the one place that Honda are having success? It's in BSB. They're doing great there. Yeah. And one of the things I found interesting talking to a lot of people on the quiet in the BSB paddock about the way that the Honda is developed in Britain compared to what they have in, in Worlds is that they've got a lot of stock parts on it in terms of mm-hmm. linkages and, and different elements on the bike that maybe on the world SBK bike you might need because you need to make use of extra power. You've got the electronics, got lots of different variables that come into it. But in, in terms of the stock parts, they're an awful lot more flexible, a little bit less stiff. So that's given them an advantage in the British Championship. But whether or not a HRC team will ever say a stock part is better than the part we developed, mm. I think that's pretty debatable because we've seen how Honda operates. Do you think yeah, Leon I mean, ends up I, back there with Honda next year at BSB? Is that where he goes? What's that? Do you think Do you think Leon ends up back with Honda at BSB next year? I think he ends up in Kawasaki and BSB, or yeah. they decide to keep him just to have familiarity. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for me, if I was if I was running the Honda team, I think I'd obviously be looking at, like Honda will do at young riders to see who they can bring in to yeah. to try and develop someone going forward. Iker Lekawona's on the market. He's got two yes. years Grand Prix experience on big bikes. He's you know, an ex supermoto rider, he's talented and yeah. he needs to prove himself. So he could be a good rider for it. You've got someone like Dami Agadar that's already been a hunter. Gagne. I'll be honest, right? Gagne's done a great job this year. But the World Superbike Paddock is it's got too much of a memory of what it was like seeing him on the Red Bull Honda. Yeah, I know. And what a that's pile, the, that's the problem for Jake because he came in and like everyone wanted him to succeed. He's such a talented rider. But at that stage, it was way too big a step for him. I think now he could make that step because he's had the he's had the experience of working with attack. And then you could have it where if he made that step now, he'd actually know what to expect. When Gerloff made the step to World Superbikes, I was asking him, you know, how does this team compare to what you've had in America? And he, he said, I, I had a world class team in America. This is this is a sideways step. It's not a step up. Whereas, yep. you know, if you were asking Jake about that, every time he came off the bike, it was the best bike he'd ever ridden because he had a bit more experience with it. The team were working really well. When he was on on the, I, I can't remember what the name of the team was whenever he was in Moto America on the Honda. Broaster Chicken. I was trying yeah. to remember something. All I could remember was Chicken yeah. and I was there. I can't say the Chicken <laughs> Honda. And uh, chicken when, he was, Honda. when he was on that bike, you know, he was the difference for that team. He was the one that made that team better because he's a super talent. Whereas once you're at that elite level, it's about the team and the rider. And I think that's yeah. what's going to hold Jake back, potentially. But we've also been able to show over the course of the last couple of years, Gerloff's been able to step up. Cambobier's been able to step up in Moto2 and done a really good job at certain rounds. So I think that shows that if you're good in Moto America, there is an opportunity now. So maybe Ganya gets another opportunity, but it might be where he has to wait for you know maybe a back-to-back Moto America season, and then he yeah. gets a chance in 23. Yeah, but yeah. then he's 29 years old, I think, or something like that, right, Jay? I can't remember yeah, how old no, he is. is but, he is. And that's yeah. the problem. I mean, if it wasn't Honda, maybe. But I also think right now, for, for a guy like Gagne, uh, the crew chief that he has, like if he could go with, with John to World Superbike, kind of like what Spees ended up doing, you know, having the same – Tom Houseworth went with him for his Superbike. Familiarity. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's that translation um, – because Gagne is a guy who just runs his own program. He doesn't get caught up in the minutiae of it. But he, I mean, I don't know. From my perspective, if you look at the laps that Bobier set down, the track records, and the fact that that uh, Gagne has been breaking them, 
is a, is a deal. It's a big it's a big deal to me, and it shows that he made a big step in his riding. I think that's fair to say, and I think what's going to help him is in 2023, you wouldn't be surprised if Gerloff gets an opportunity to be on a MotoGP bike, which then frees up a spot in superbikes for an American rider. Mm, so you could easily point. have a situation where 23 is the optimum year for him to make that step because mm-hmm. that's when a lot of contracts are up as well. That's when you're going to have opportunities to move in. And then you wait and see what happens. You've also got it where, you know, Top Rack's obviously had a lot of interest from the Grand Prix paddock. If he wins the championship in the next two years, he's achieved what he wanted to achieve in superbikes. He could move. That opens up the Yamaha seat. You look at what happens at Ducati. At the end of the day, Bautista might be a one and done again. Rinaldi might be finished at the end of next year. You look at all the other teams, there's going to be opportunity. Johnny's not going to keep going forever. Mm. No. I think there'll be two superbike seats open at Ducati at the end of next year. Hmm. All right, let's move on. As we're still sitting in news here, I uh, just want to say, uh, th- you know, good news for BSB star Brad Jones. Mm. He's been released from the hospital, so it's good news he's on his way. Uh, any comments, you guys can jump in. Happy trails to American flat track star Brian Smith. He announced his retirement from full-time racing. I'm going to tell you something, man. That guy was part of a, a smith Mees battle that just gave us some great racing over the years. Any comments you'd like to make about those two things? Any of you two clowns? Well, I don't follow AFT as much, but I know uh, it's great to see Brad Jones actually going home. Sounds like he's got some neurological stuff he's got to get sorted out. Steve, is that kind of where it's at right now? Yeah, it seems to be. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know Brad too well. I don't spend that much time in the BSB paddock anymore. So yep. what I've sort of heard has been secondhand from a lot of people, but uh, yep. it looks positive for him, and at least great. he's able to get out of the hospital now. I know that you know when you talk to different riders that have all been involved. Scott Redding's obviously been very actively involved yep. in trying to raise funds for for helping the hospital fund for Brad. So that, that I think gives a good indication of what type of guy Brad is and also what type of guy Scott is. So uh, yeah. clearly, uh, you know, doing what he can for his friend. Okay. All right. And how about some trivia, JP? Here's a little bit for you about Valentino Rossi. All right. Mm. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but Haven't. in his career in the premier class, Valentino has squared off against 175 racers. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's only been one, only one that he oh. has not beaten. Any idea who it is? Uh, um, you mean like, uh, like, so it would have to be from this year because he's raced everybody. 175 racers. He's beat them all but one. Now, by the way, this comes from a great little feature with Susie Perry and Valentino for MotoGP on BT Sport. It was a cool video on Twitter. He only not beat one. Steve, you know this, don't you? No, you I don't. I, I didn't get to see it, actually. So oh, you it, didn't? Ha- it would have to be, uh, well... I knew the, it immediately. I, I just like when she said it, I was like, oh. Who are the rookies this year? Mm. Who are the rookies this year? You got Martin. Who else is well, a rookie? Hold on. While you're thinking about this, Jay, would yeah. you like to go down in history as the only rider to ever race Valentino Rossi who he didn't? Him. Yeah. It just has to be a rookie from this year. And I could be. Uh, is it, who's rookies this year? Marini? Bastianini? Martin? It had to be Martin because Martin has only raced seven races. Uh, mm. You always give me the answer. See, I'm, 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 I'm assuming it's some absolute wild card. You know, something like Luca Cadalora came back for a round. And <laughs> it might have been him, kind of thing, because you know, I, like, or you go to Suzuki. No, but it's right. And, no, but at some point. So the answer to your question, the answer to this question is Garrett Gerloff. Ah. Garrett Gerloff, right now, as of this moment, is the only rider in history that Valentino Rossi has not beaten on a GP bike in the Premier Class. What happened at Assen? I don't remember. He tossed it. He Valentino crashed, right? Oh, I see. And Garrett beat him. Yeah, got it. 
Yep. Got it. Okay. Oh, see, me and JP were thinking it was races where he finished, you know. That's like, what I was uh, thinking. That's yeah. what I was thinking. <laughs> Obviously, hey, Jay. Yeah. Hey, yeah. No, yeah I'm with right. you. Hey, you line up and you don't finish, man. That's getting beat. That's all yeah. I'm saying. All right. Yeah, that's Greg why used to count those as victories, Steve. If 100%, somebody crashed, you'd be like, you, oh, I beat that guy. Hey, I him. live by, I think I have tattooed on my buttocks to yeah, finish no first. First, you must finish. I think so. Yeah. Hard to well, say. great. Anyway, that's, that's your news presented by Arise. So now we move on in the rundown where Jason Pridmore let's has read his it. rundown and he knows what's coming up next. Yep. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the results from Silverstone. I thought all that. All uh, right. All right. All right. Are we good there? Are we good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're good. Yeah. You know, when you look at the results from this last weekend, I think it's pretty clear cut right now, Steve, who is the guy in MotoGP? I mean, Quattararo did an amazing job. His rivals struggled. It was, it was, this weekend was like a little bit different though. He didn't quite get the start. He was very patient, kind of got through those guys. And this is what makes kind of the dynamics of what we've hear about the Yamaha so often, as far as it being a, a bike that when you get behind these guys, this is where I think they've made a step. We've heard in the past that it's very hard to pass guys. They have no grip. They have this and that. Quattararo this weekend kind of proved that all wrong by stepping up and, and running third and fourth, getting by those guys, and then just literally pulling away. And you could kind of see it in his face after qualifying, couldn't you? When he qualified third, he says, my race pace is really, really good. A little bit bummed that the soft tire didn't work in qualifying. But, man, this weekend was the weekend, I think, that to me, he to me, this was the weekend that it showed me nobody's catching him this year. Yeah, because no one's able to be his consistent competitor. You look at it mm-hmm. from one week to the next, Ducati's always able to get close to him. But who's it going to be on any given day? Is it going to be Bagnaya, Miller, Zarco, Jorge Martins had you know three or four great races this season as well. But there's no one that's consistently able to do it. Juan Mir built his whole championship last year on consistency. Now he needs to win races. Fair enough. Yeah, He's a world champion. He showed how good he was last year. But there's a difference between having to finish on the podium every day and having to go out and win the races. is in the position there where he has to finish on the podium, and he's guaranteed the championship. So I think we're now at that stage where Fabio's been great this year, but there's no one that's consistently been able to do what he's done, and that's why Fabio's been so amazing this year, because every time he's out in the bike, he's in the top three pretty much. Well, we saw last year that he had some amazing you know, first half of the season, and I think that, that this year mentally he's come back a little bit different rider. I think it also goes to say that Really leading into this weekend, I had said before that Mir and Bagnaya actually were, were in with a shout. I felt like if they could apply some pressure and finish ahead of him and do some of the things I thought needed, um, you know, even I, the race in Austria with what it was those last two or three laps, it allowed those guys to kind of get ahead of Quattararo. And you could kind of see how pissed off Quattararo was to finish seventh because I feel like he was thinking championship already and he's already thinking about giving up those points to those guys. He was really irritated by it. And what really as a racer, you're going to be irritated, but you're also got to sit back and go, well, I finished seventh and it was a crazy last two or three laps. I had these guys covered until then. This one though, I haven't got to do too much reading in the last couple of days and I haven't really seen what happened to Mir and Bagnaya, but is, is it just tires? Do they just have bad tires or Bagnaya seems to, this is like the second or third time this year where it's happened, where he has just gone to absolute to the depths of the back and which is really unusual. Yeah, and he had that a few times last year as well. So I think it, it is a case of you do get sometimes now where there is not so much a bad tire, but a less than optimal tire. And yeah. uh, like we have it obviously at times in the in the past with Pirelli and Superbikes, where when you've got a control tire, sometimes some tires have been sitting in the stack a little bit longer. Sometimes they've been yeah. sitting surrounded by other tires for longer. So they just build up a half a heat cycle, let's say. And then suddenly mm-hmm. that takes a bit more out of them whenever they get into the race weekend. 
sometimes you get caught out. I think Silverstone was probably a very extreme example of that because the track temperature was so much lower than they expected. So yeah. suddenly you might have had it where you couldn't use the tire you needed to use. And that could have been what happened to someone like Bagnaya because the whole way through the weekend, we heard riders talk in terms of track temperature, the issues they were experiencing, one thing or another. And then whenever a lot of riders have the same issue during the course of a race, it's very unlikely that all of them got bad tires. It's more yeah. likely that you just couldn't quite get it into the operating window because the Michelin's clearly a, a very particular tire. It doesn't mm-hmm. have that big wide operating window for each of the compounds. It's just got lots of compounds or whatever that you're able to then use on any given weekend. So I think that it could be a, a case for this race where you needed to be on one tire and maybe it was just those couple of degrees too low to be able to use it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's pretty wild when you see, you know, Rins obviously had a, tr- a tremendous run. I, I really rate Rins and it's, it's so upsetting for me to see him have, you know, the inconsistencies and the tossing it down the road stuff that we've seen him do. But, but Mir, when he got off the bike, you, you, I expect him to always be in the top five because he's just, I feel like Mir's a tremendous rider. Um, but he got off the bike and looked immediately at the tire. And you know, when those guys are dropping like stones through the field, I mean, it happened to Rossi too. Rossi was arguably on his best weekend of the entire year. And I mean, he ends up where he end up 15th or something at the end. Like, 18th, even, I no, think. 18th out of the points. Yeah. I mean, he just ahead of Jake close. Dixon. Well, I mean, Jake Dixon by 21 seconds, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just such a gigantic drop off. And I think that, I mean, what Quattro is doing on the Yamaha right now is is pretty incredible when you consider nobody else. It's kind of like the Marquez factor when Marquez was doing so well on the Honda, nobody could even get near what he was doing, and and that's what Quattro is doing now. Hmm. And he's going to some strong tracks for them, I think. Yeah, I think when you look at Aragon coming up, two rounds at Mizano, you know, it gives him a really good opportunity to be able to get some good results between now and the end of the European season before hopefully we go to Coda. And you come to the end of end of the year then with Portimao and Valencia tracks where he can go really well at too. So yeah. I don't see any way he loses this championship other than he loses this championship. And yeah. that's by getting an injury. And you know, at the end of the day, that's what we saw on Friday morning when he has a big crash. Ooh. This can happen. Yeah. And, it does, yeah. You know, how many times have we seen it where you know a rider a rider looks unbeatable until suddenly something happens. Yeah, that Fabio was an awkward. Crash. Did so well to jump out from that and keep himself on form for the rest of the weekend. I really thought in that crash that it looked like the bike may have like really hit him in the groin area, you know, and then the commentators saying ankle. ankle. It looked, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I, I thought he took a, a pretty big beating. So Quattararo wins. Rins is second. Alicia Spargo third. We've kind of touched on him already. Jack Miller gets beat by a tenth of a second for fourth. But then we get to fifth place, Polo Spargo, who had a banner weekend for himself. He got pole position. He had his best finishing results so far. Guys, do you think that this is just a one-off for Polo Spargo, or do you think they finally sorted some stuff out? Can it be both? I think, well, yeah. It can, I was going to say, I, I kind of think it's going to be both. I think until we prove that he can back it up, I think that he seems like he's been working really hard, Steve, uh, to get get himself acquainted with the Honda. I think, like he said, winning, getting pole position on Saturday was like a win of a Grand Prix for him. I mean, he's not really gotten talked about. Next thing you know, he sets, sets pole time. Um, but I think to see him back it up, I think going to Aragon will be a good track for him too. I don't know if Mazzano would have been the next best track for that bike for him. I think the thing to remember about Paul is this was a track that he was able to generate grip. So he was able to use the rear brake. He was able to really use his riding style. And that's Mm -hmm. where I think it was quite interesting whenever everyone talked about Paul jumping onto the Honda. He was an ideal rider to basically replicate what you can do with Marquez because he brakes heavy. He's, you know, really strong at that point of the corner entry. But it was over the weekend where he really talked a lot about how, yeah, he does that, 
but he uses the rear brake all the time to then give him that little bit more control. So he wasn't able to do that up until now with the Honda. So maybe for the rest of the season, if they're able to make that step and replicate it, he'll be able to incorporate more of his traditional riding style into it. I think Aragon mightn't be like that, but I would actually expect Mizano could help him because Mizano's mm. usually quite a high grip track surface. So yeah. maybe that's going to be one that could play into his strengths. But yeah. I think at the end of the day, you can't look at one swallow and think that it's summertime. So until Paul backs it up, you hope that this is a step. But is it really? Yeah. Did you get that you one, Greg? See, well done. Hold on. Yeah, you can't look at one swallow and expect it to be and expect... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, yep. That's and good. See, that's the stuff we're getting when we get this Well, when on. you say stuff like swallow, it just catches my attention anyway. Oh, so I didn't what know where about, he was uh, going with that. That's great. That's great. We're going full non-PCC. PC. Um, what do you think I'm not, about? I'm like, not taking I mean, responsibility. I love for birds. That, JP. I love yeah. birds. I don't know what you're talking about. I think the fact that when you look What's at the, the problem, next two, Bender and Lekawona, when you look at Bender and Lekawona, and you go sixth and seventh, I think the really impressive bit here is how close Lekawona actually was to Bender. So he's putting himself right in the shop window, isn't he? I mean, he obviously knows he's without a ride next year. Um, does Lekawona belong? I mean, does he deserve a ride in your eyes? Um, could he go to Honda World Superbike and something like that? I think the, he was right behind Bender at the finish. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, for anyone watching MotoGP over the last two years, does Lekawona deserve a MotoGP ride? Probably not. He mm. was fortunate the way that everything sort of fell into place to get him onto the KTM a few years ago. But he's a talented rider. The problem for mm. him is his whole career has been short-tracked. He went straight into Moto2. I think he only did a couple of years in Moto2 and then jumped onto a MotoGP bike. So it's all been really condensed from he's only 20, 21 years old. So yeah. he's still really young. If he jumps onto a superbike, I think he could be a real weapon because he 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 could click with it all. And you've yeah. got a young rider that's hungry, that's clearly talented, that's had to develop in the Grand Prix paddock. And I think yeah. that's one of the big things that we've seen over the last few years is the riders that have had to constantly be at that limit, lap after lap, every practice lap counts, all those things do make a big difference in superbikes that's why yeah. i'd love to see him go and i think that's where you're starting to see that bit of a sea change now where riders like tom sykes is a good example of it because tom is one of those riders that will do one fast lap one slow lap one fast lap he's able to get it together in his head what he needs to do to do the fast laps but maybe the team aren't able to fully use all the data so maybe having someone now that comes from that grand prix background where they have to constantly be on that point and lap after lap might make a difference for a team to really help drive them forward as well yeah and i think that when you start talking about and i don't want to get back to the world superbike talk but i think you said it earlier i think having a seasoned guy and then having a young guy jump on i think would be the optimate the, the the best thing for them um in that regard when you look a little further back i'll tell you alex marquez has impressed me a little bit more uh recently he's shown form in qualifying uh he was there in the race if you watch he started to kind of run those guys down Looked like he fell onto some trouble at the end, uh, tire-wise. But um, I think that Alex Marquez has been a little bit more impressive to me in the last, let's say, three, four rounds than he has pretty much in the last year and a half. Yeah, well, he's gotten into Q2 on, I think, two or three of the last four yep. rounds. He's had three top tens in a row now. So he's been able to clearly make his step forward. And some yep. of that's obviously going to be where some riders are having their, their off days and they're being affected like what we saw at Silverstone. But... That's also only one day. Whenever you're able to do it three rounds in a row, it shows that you're making some progress with it. Getting closer, huh? And where did Alex go really well last year? He went really well in Aragon. You he know, did. it was a strange race, obviously. But you know, that could be a good track for him. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. And looking further down the order because yeah. this really just gives me the shits in terms of my fantasy because <laughs> I have just had nothing but red arrows the last three weekends. You know, where Ducati was in this mix, I have no idea. I know Jack Miller was up close, but my guy, you know, just losing his mind. I mean, Marquez taking out Jorge Martin on my last minute switch in fantasy crushed me there. Love that. Why? I love Why that. You? It, uh, you know, I love that it crushed you. However, Bagnaya. I wanted to talk about this a little bit because. I mean, when you look at that accident, that is just Marquez with the red mist wanting to go back. And, and he even admitted, you know, he said he's sorry publicly and all that. And I get it. But he went I down mean, to the garage, too. He went, you know, he, he went he right down there. He literally stood the bike up to run into Martine. And this is where it goes back to what I always say. So, so many times as a rider, as a racer, we don't really go out there to run into people. We don't really go. I, I fully believe that what he was expecting to do was rub his fairing up against Martine and then continue to make the corner. And of course, they end up collecting each other and falling over. Um, really silly mistake by Marquez, I felt. Um, and Martin, that's probably why Martin has lashed out a little bit. I think he's handled it pretty well. But on the flip side of it, I think Marquez has lost the intimidation factor from a lot of these guys. Sitting that year out, to me, just seems like it's he's lost that a bit. Well, the thing I find interesting about it is there's always parallels, no matter where you look at in racing. And mm-hmm. I think you can make it. You can make a parallel between someone like Marquez and I don't know. Like you could look at like an NFL player, uh, Mike Vick, someone like that comes in as a rookie and immediately lights everything up, does stuff that no one else is doing in the league, makes everyone have to defend against him. Marquez came in; he was straight away the apex predator of MotoGP. He was just better mm-hmm. than everyone else from his pretty much his debut, and then you know as he's gotten injured. Suddenly, he's lost that bit of an edge, and then yep. you know to go back to someone like Vic, when he lost a step, suddenly he had to pick his moments to try and run out of the pocket. He had to think of different ways to win. Mark's having to think of different ways to win now, and I think when you look at Mark now compared to a few years ago, he used to make those saves. Maybe yep. with the injury, the reflexes are gone. Maybe Mark isn't going to be Mark Marquez nineteen twenty races a year. Maybe he's going to be Mark Marquez four or five times a year. And the rest of the time, he's going to be just a very, very fast rider. And I think, Mark, it's going to be interesting to see what happens after a full winter to see if the mark that turns up in Qatar is the mark that we've seen crash out of so many races this year or the one that we saw just be the best rider any of us have ever seen. Well, I looked at a lot of it like, you know, before Tiger Woods went through his little thing where he was gone for a year, year and a half, there was an intimidation factor that when he walked into the golf course, People just were like, oh, that's, that's the guy we got to beat. And I think Mark has rightfully so, like you say, his success rate from the beginning of a cha- from the beginning of the time he walked into the championship um, in Moto3 through, you know, through to his injury, he was looked at that way. Like it was just an expectant. And then with him sitting a year out and these guys all stepping up, I think that that gap is closed so much that that intimidated these young guys, they don't care anymore. They don't care about who's the guy or who was the guy. And I think that that definitely plays on you. Yeah, and I have to say, JP, a Tiger comparison is much more apt than a twenty-year-old, you know, <laughs> quarterback or whatever. So uh, yeah. I'll definitely well, you give, know, give, well, give you that with Tiger. Well, you know, yeah. who hasn't lost a step, Tom Brady. Yeah, I knew he that never was had coming. the steps. Knew, so that's all right. Well, I, I mean, was, come on. Yeah, guy can't run. He's not much of a. So. He's not. He's not a gazelle. Okay, yeah, I'll give you he that. He runs like you. He runs like you, G Dub. Runs know? like me running yeah. after a donut. <laughs> 
He runs like you. So, uh, you know, and again, Bagnaya, just a shocking weekend. Same with Nakagami. Nakagami's been pretty good this year. Zarco, another huge crushing thing to him. I mean, Zarco's just off the back. Miguel Oliveira's um, slipping. Oliveira. Like, where, where, is, Oliveira? Is, is he hurt? Is he just not? Are we He's got to be, He right? has to be hurt. Has yeah. to be. There's no way he just goes from where he was to to where he is. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, these guys are back on it at Aragon. I think in Moto2, when we watch it, you know, the bummer part of, for me this year, when we looked at these, uh, when we looked at Silverstone and, and I've never actually got to be there. It's one of the few tracks, Steve, I've never actually gone to. I've been to Brands and Donington, never been to Silverstone. It looks like such a tremendous place. I mean, it looks great, but the racing this year, MotoGP was a little bit boring. I'm going to be honest. I thought having a lace up there was, was great seeing that battle. Um, but Moto2, again, was another one where when you look at Remy Gardner, you've got to look at Remy Gardner right now and be really excited about the prospects of him coming into MotoGP going into next year. He ends up beating Bezeki, Navarro. I thought Sam did a good job keeping it on the planet as far as, you know, I know he wa- probably wanted to be on the podium in front of his home crowd. But um, right now, Remy Gardner has just really proven himself to be a guy that deserves the next step. And he, he just looks a little bit head and shoulders above these guys. Yeah, Remy's, Remy's shown himself to be the absolute class act of that championship this year. And I think you've also seen just how good Aki Ayo is in that team because yep. we always knew Remy had something. But yep. to be able to do what he's doing week in, week out is really impressive. And I thought the way that he – the way that he, he – he played that gap to Bezeki through the race. I thought he managed himself really well. He put Bezeki under pressure. I thought Bezeki had a really good race. I thought all of the top four guys yeah. had really good races in one way or the other. And yeah, they I just, just weren't locked that, together, but I agree. Yeah, and and I think it was strange that Silverstone was the weekend where we've seen something like that because yeah, you know you don't see breakaways in Moto Three. You don't see yeah races that are strung out in Moto GP anymore. You do see what we saw in Moto Two happen, but that's all right yep. because that's the yes. way that, that class is. But yep. it's, it was surprising to happen at Silverstone because this is where we've had so many really good races. And that's where I go back to the track temperature and the tires, just not being able to quite get them to work. And I think that probably for me illustrated it more than, you know, riders yo-yoing up and down the field because we're yep. always yeah, but, used to seeing really close. That's how pass. the race, though, I, I think that, that Silverstone was one of those examples of it was a, it was a team race, wasn't it? In terms of like, Every rider, you can't just have a bike go out Silverstone and override it. When you have certain key things that are, you know, that are metas of, you know, what's the tire temperature? What are we going to choose? And the guidance and experience of some crew chiefs or even some other people within the team, electronics folks on MotoGP, that that's what we saw more than anything else. I think that was a huge separator. I mean, if you watch the qualifyings and everything all weekend long, when when riders started flinging them down the road, right, Steve? I mean, they were just launching them all over the place when the track temperature was cold. They were. I'm thinking to myself, what are you guys doing? Like, like who doesn't know that this is coming? You, you can clearly read a thermostat, can't you? Well, I'll tell you what, when, when you see Mark having his crash at 172, oh, 173 miles God, an hour, yeah. and you're just thinking like, Phew. you know, like I think for Mark, it was his second fastest crash he's ever had. And like, it's hard to believe he had one faster than that. But, you know, it's Mark, so it happened. And, did, you see uh, some of the, did you see some of the comments? I think, I forget who it was. might have been Jeremy McWilliams. But it was almost like he was talking about when, when Mark has holds his arms into his hands or into his body, into his chest, it's almost like he started flipping more. Did you guys see the argument on that? I think it was on yeah. Twitter. Or, it was interesting because I thought the same. Like, honestly, when you fall that fast, you're almost better just kind of getting your arms out and sliding, you know? And uh, it almost looked like when, as soon as he tucked his hands in, it turned him more into a barrel. And he started barrel rolling and it was like, oh, like it, 
I don't know. It was, it was an interesting. Yeah. Topic, but if you have the injury that Mark has, don't you Correct, want to protect with the arms. it? That's yeah, the big I, thing I because you're, you're right, Jay. Um, we, you know, you and I actually know some people that are stunt stunt folks in Hollywood. And if they do like a scene where they're trying to roll someone down a hill and they want more speed, that's yep. the key. The yep. key is tuck. tuck if you want to make it more dramatic and flare it out and slow it down the hill, then you're throwing all your, your arms and your legs out to help slow the thing down. But yep. I'm thinking the same thing as Mark. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I got to protect myself enough with this getting injured stuff. Yeah, I think no. it's interesting though that there's a few riders that do that as well. We saw Arenas doing it over the last few years, and mm-hmm. maybe it's something that some riders are just training themselves to do because mm-hmm. maybe they're not too worried about you know a concussion. Maybe they're just worried about a fracture. And for someone well, like Mark, he's clearly worried about his arm and his shoulders. He's had sur- surgery on both so- shoulders. He's obviously had the arm injury, so that's where his primary concern is. Well, I will say this: when you when you fall that fast and you go in grass compared to gravel, like when you're in gravel, that, that starts you flipping. When you're in grass, a lot of times you're going to be sliding. So I think there's two ways mm-hmm. of looking at that. Okay. So, uh, if it's grass, probably wet grass too, being it was, it was England. I'm sure that grass was wet at some point. Um, <laughs> the, the sliding side of it was probably be easier. So, you know, when, when we go back and we look at this, got a really interesting, um, email this week from Paul Piercy on my Instagram. And he was talking about, Brad Binder to to um, I'm talking about Brad Binder to Remy Gardner and how Binder kind of came through. Um, what's your feeling, Steve, as far as next year seeing Gardner get straight onto the KTM? Does he become an instant challenger because he's done so well in Moto Two and we've seen him come through pretty well the last couple of years? Does he become an instant challenger when he jumps on this KTM next year? It's a strange one because Remy's got probably the best part of a hundred starts in Moto Two. Yeah. And then yep. you jump onto the KTM, you jump onto the Tech 12 bike, you know, it could work really well. It could all click into place immediately and he's able yep. to build on what he did this year or maybe he needs time. That's where I think it's always interesting when you look at riders coming through from Moto2 onto a MotoGP bike because when you look at the rookies that were coming in this year, like obviously Jorge Martin on a Moto3 bike was amazing. You know, his yep. pole laps, wins, world championship, he was a class act. In Moto2, I remember like uh, Sepang was the first race I went in a long time j- during that season, and I looked at him, and I remember coming away from it thinking, like, God, he, he looks great. But the lap times weren't there. And then he spent another year where he was struggling a little bit, showing flashes. But then which of the rookies has jumped onto a MotoGP bike and looked I- fantastic? It's Martin. You know, and yeah. you look at the other guys like Bastianini or Marini, they've shown good flashes of what they yeah. can do. But Martin's been the one that's consistently done that. You wouldn't have thought that looking at the World Championship in Moto2 last year. So it could be a case of Remy jumps on it, does really well. It could be a case of Raul Fernandez jumps on it and does really well too. So yep. I, think I think it's like anything else. You have to really just wait well, and yeah. see. Yeah, I think I think we should do. It may not yeah. be where we see them both do really well every week, but yep. you're not getting that with the top riders in MotoGP anymore. Correct. So why would you expect it from a rookie? Yeah. With but, the exception but, but of one a, guy, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a possibility uh, that Raul Fernandez is going to do a little bit better, I think, because of the amount of time he hasn't spent in Moto Two, almost, mm. you know. And so that that's the thing that that's very interesting to me. And it's I know that it's a topic that that the FIM and, and Dorna and whoever else is involved is kind of looking at what's the next step for Moto Two in terms of electronics. How do we start to open these bikes up? Are we going to start adding traction control and those types of things to to further the base of knowledge? four riders going into MotoGP and it almost seems like the less time you spend in Moto2 
the quicker some of these riders are getting up to speed. I have zero data to prove that. It's just how I feel about it. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think other people inside the organizations are looking at that as well and saying, okay, so we have this Moto2 bike. We know the sophistication of it, the electronics of it. They have a box, but what's the next step? Well, I think what's interesting with Moto2 is in the past, especially when it was the 600 bike, riders didn't need the full year. You look at the amount of times never you saw a Rins, a Vinales come in, do a really good job from rounds four to eight. And then the second half that year, they were fantastic. Mir was a bit like that. But then, you know, they'd make the step on to MotoGP bikes and they were ready for it. And when you talk to them about it, the big thing they were talking about at that stage would have been, you know, 2013, 14, 15. That was, they needed to get used to the body position needed for a MotoGP bike. So at that stage, that's when riders were getting their elbows down. That's when they were really having to change their riding style. And that's what Moto2 was used for for them. And, you know, mm-hmm. when Jack Miller went from a Moto3 bike to a MotoGP bike, that's what he talked about maybe missing by not having a few Moto GP, Moto2 races under his belt. Nowadays, yeah. because the step from a Moto3 bike to a Moto2 bike is much bigger, I think having the full season does help. Having yeah. a couple of seasons can make a big difference. And I think someone like Fernandez, this year is a little bit special. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, everything's sort of fallen into place to put him onto a Moto GP bike for next year. But when you look at what he did in Moto3, it's very similar to what we saw from Jorge Martin. A load of pole positions, he was just flat out faster than everyone else. Maybe in races, because he was bigger than them, he couldn't show that. But he could follow the the Martin path. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that when you look at a couple things, and this is another thing that Paul brought up in this email to me, which I think is good. When Binder was riding a Moto2, he was on a KTM chassis that wasn't the best. He goes to MotoGP. I feel like now MotoGP KTM has refined this motorcycle a little bit more. Remy's coming from a winning season in Moto2 where he could quite possibly and will win the world championship and jump onto a bike that is more rideable now, this KTM MotoGP bike, than what Bender even jumped on when he started. So I think that I think that it's going to be interesting. Greg, a couple things real quick to cover real in Moto2. Your guy, Ayer Gura, a little bit further back this weekend, ends up ninth. Um, we saw DeGian Antonio do a little bit better in fifth. The two Americans, Joe Roberts, ends up tenth. And unfortunately for Cam, ends up on the ground again. Yeah, that was... Uh... That was a heartbreaker. I'm yeah. gonna t- I'm gonna talk to him tomorrow. Yep. Bobier for his 21 and 21 Moto America interview thing. So I, I think I'm just gonna leave Moto Two conversation out. Yep. Just get into it with him a little bit tomorrow. But I think yep. uh, Steve, it was really what? weird because it was the closest, <laughs> and I want Steve to talk about this real quick. But it's the closest we've seen him actually going into you know qualifying two. Uh-huh. Um, it, he was he was right there in there. Um, but boy, I tell you, if you start in the back with those guys, it just seems it just seems so hard to get moving forward. Yeah, Moto2 is just an absolute snake pit, and you need yeah. to be in one of those top teams. That's why we're seeing, you know, VO46, IO, and the Mark VDS team always at the front, because they're yeah. the teams that are the best crews. They're the teams that are able to get the most out of themselves. And even in a year like this, where it's mostly been the IO bikes, it's pretty much always been Lowe's and Fernandez getting close to him on the VDS bikes. And then Bezeki, obviously, he was really strong at Silverstone for most yeah. of the rest of the season. He's been a little bit of a step behind, but they've been You're the top right, five yeah. pretty much everywhere. I yep. thought, like, for me, Bobby has done a really good job this year because, you know, it might be the second year of that team, but we don't really know the level of that team yet. That's right. And I think I think he's done really well. I think when you look at his, his chrono from lap three to the end of the races, he's always really impressive. <coughs> It's just you're giving up too much ground on the first two laps because you're coming from the midfield. 
but I think really he's, qualifying, I think he's done a really good it, job. Steve. Yeah, qualifying. I mean, if he can make a step in that, he's, he's going to well, be great. And, and what a lot of people don't really understand, too, is that it hasn't been the smoothest year in terms of personnel inside that team. He lost his crew chief a couple of races into it for reasons I'm not going to get into. But, but they're you know, kind they, of funny. They're kind of good reasons. Yeah, but I'm not saying them anyway. <laughs> no, it I mean, is they're good not, stories, but yeah. I know they're good mean. stories, but nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. So it, it, it hasn't it been sucks. the smoothest year there. And and the reality is, you know, I was talking to Jake Zemke, who, who you know, obviously manages Cameron Bobier. They're very good friends. And, and, you know, he said the best thing to me. He's just like, look, man, when you spend as much, as many years as Cameron Bobier has on a superbike, and you are programmed electronically to, to do certain things, you're having to relearn that motorcycle. You're having to relearn how to ride a motorcycle with no electronics. And someone tweeted me something like, oh, you know, it just shows you how difficult or how you know bad superbikes are. And I'm like, my argument would be it's easier to go from superbike to MotoGP with all the electronics experience you have than it is to go from superbike and go backwards to Moto2. And I don't think people really understand that. Yeah. Well, that's where you have to remember a superbike is more electronically advanced than a MotoGP bike. It's a step back to go to a MotoGP bike in terms of what you're fully able to do with it. And then I think for someone like Cam, what's probably been a really underestimated thing as well is, yeah, he's run Dunlop tires in America, but they're very different tires than what you have over here. Way different. So yeah, yeah, like, yeah. they might have the same sticker on them. They're totally different brands, effectively. There's the European Dunlop mm-hmm. and there's American Dunlop. And he's had to learn how to get the most out of those Moto2 tires. And we've seen vastly more experienced Moto2 riders struggle with that this year. Yeah, and he, Cameron will tell you he just hasn't found the front end feel. It is like he gets down to where he likes to be in the fork stroke, and he just can't feel the front tire. And it's something he had, especially last year when Attack took over the factory Yamaha stuff and basically took a a blend of electronic strategies and 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 suspension strategies from World Superbike. He took what factory Yamaha had in the U.S. He blends it to, and then he added Richard Stamboli's brain to it all. And that's what we saw. I mean, I've seen data where Cameron Bobier is in a corner on the brakes and he has the throttle open as he's applying the throttle. He can actually cross over those two things at one time to do certain things to the motorcycle to get it to work. He's actually braking and accelerating. It's a small moment in time, but it's something that is very special. And if you talk to Richard Stamboli, he will tell you it's something that he's only seen one other time before. And I'm not going to mention who that rider is mm-hmm. because that rider's ego is already big enough as it is. But it might be someone on this podcast. I'm not Loosen sure. up the headphones, JP. That's all you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying yeah. like, you know, you go from that level of trusting and learning. Because if you go talk to Josh Hayes and, and, and even Josh Heron, who won his Superbike Championship in 2013, the level, the sophistication of electronics they had, they'll tell you, was very rudimentary. So, you know, Cameron Bobier comes in soon after that, and he just keeps learning and developing and more channels of data and faster, you know, brains and more sensors. And then all of a sudden you go to a Moto2 bike and they get what, Steve? They get, uh, I don't know. I think like I think you have five TC settings. You get twenty no engine TC, braking. I don't think, they have any, yeah, oh, I don't think they have any. No I, I TC, that, but they have engine braking. I think that's it. Yeah, I, I know that there's there's different power modes, and pretty much everyone just keeps it on the max power mode all the time. Except <laughs> all the time. they might trying to save they gas. might turn it down one whenever they're going to the wet, and then they've oh, got yeah. their engine braking one. So they don't tend to have an awful lot of strategies <sighs> because even then for the engine braking, it seems that most of them only use four or five of those maps. So yeah. You know, it is limited what you can do, but it is a lot more open than it had been in the past. So you are able to learn something. I think that the fact that Cameron's 
morale is as up as it was when we saw him at Laguna. He was still just fired up about being over there, wants to get better. He's tackling it pretty well. I was I was really interested to just sit down and talk with him at Laguna just a month or so, a month and a half ago, just to see what the morale was like. And he still seems like he's happy to be where he's at. Um, so it, it's and, and again, there's another guy that you know if you're talking about superbike pilots and you're talking about superbike alone, you, you go. No, why wouldn't Honda even maybe consider taking a, a guy that's won four superbike championships? And it's interesting. Why wouldn't Yamaha think of taking a guy that won five superbike championships for them and put him on to their MotoGP bike? That's what I've been yeah, questioning. I agree. I, I, I said it from, I agree. I think it was Assen onwards, whenever people were talking about, you know, is Gerloff an option? You know, Gerloff yeah. was an option, obviously. And then everything that's happened over the last while is yeah. taking the shine off that. Bobier is a Yamaha man. He yep. has been for years yep. from super sport into super bikes, all that kind of stuff. And he's American. He ticks all yep. the box and he's fast. He's a good rider. Yep. He knows the yep. tracks now. He knows traveling around Europe. He knows all those things. And what's there to lose with it? Not an awful lot whenever no one wants to be on the bike in the first place. Yeah, that's right. No, it's, it's a, there's a lot of truth in all those statements. Moto3, let's get on with it a little bit. Romano Fanati um, showing some real form here. Obviously, you know, Fanati's been around forever. I mean, did they say in the broadcast that he's the leading Moto3 rider with wins or something like that at the end of it? I, I Maybe I'm wrong on that. But Fanati ends up winning the race over Antonelli. Dennis Faggio ends up third. Guevara, uh, Suzuki. I think they made this race really interesting. Steve touched on it earlier. Two guys just broke away, and it wasn't even close, was it? Like, they broke away and were down the road. And then you had the next pack of guys, and they were down the road. And then you had the next pack of guys. And that, that next pack of guys – unbelievably <clears throat> included the two championship contenders, Acosta and Garcia. Very strange race in that regard. When you see those guys coming across quite a ways back in 11th place was Acosta and Garcia got shuffled back really, really late at the end to finish outside the points in 16th. Crazy, weird Moto3 race. Yeah, and I think, well, Fanati, he, he's always been the rider with the most wins in the class, but yeah. I think over the last couple of rounds, he's been able to become the rider with the most podiums as well and different things because he's a super talent, but he's been there for nine years. Well, he obviously it's had a year in Moto2 as well, but, yeah. you know, he's, he's, a, he's a remarkably good rider when the stars align, and when they don't, he's invisible. And that's why Fanati's sort of found himself where he is, but he's a rider that you can guarantee is going to be a front runner for you. And that's why he's able to get in with different teams at different times. But this he? was a weekend. He, he's uh, he must be twenty four, three now, twenty four, twenty three. Yeah, okay. twenty. I'd say no, he's twenty five actually. Is he? I remember the race at Jerez when he had all white bodywork and just won by thirty seconds and with, was still with the white helmet the as well. It's, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. unreal. Like it was like those are the kind of races that you remember somebody and you think you know you just remember them. Uh, it was. I was watching that race and holding my breath every corner because he was still pushing like he was barely winning. Well, I remember I went to Qatar that year. It was That was probably my first year properly working in the paddock as well. And I went to Qatar and it was him against Vinales in the first ever Moto3 race. And you looked at it and you thought, this guy looks absolutely the real deal. Because we already knew Vinales was good. He was a winner on a one two fives. He was the championship favorite. And then there's this young Italian kid on a bike with no sponsors. He's got no personal sponsors. There's nothing on him. And uh, he's able to take it to Vinales. And then the next round goes out and wins by 30 seconds or whatever. It's still one of the biggest winning margins we ever saw in Moto3. Yeah, unreal. I think up until Mugello that year, he just looked class. And then kind of, you know, obviously he lost his way over the last few years, but the talent's still there. And, you know, he's still young enough that he can stay in Moto2 for another couple of years. And, or sorry, Moto3 for another couple of years if he opts to. 
And it's Ugh. important to have riders like that as well because yeah. you want to know if Pedro Acosta is good. Yep. You know, and Acosta is clearly good. Isan yep. Guevara is good. Javi Ortigas is good. But are they good enough? And That's you only right. know that whenever they're up against someone like a Fanati that we've been able to measure against lots of different riders. And that's where you really know that, you know, those guys could be something special. Is he linked with any Moto2, T- Moto2 teams next year at all? The problem with Moto2 is that you need to bring money. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I've, I've heard that, uh, you know, for someone like John McLeese, an interesting one, because obviously John can stay in Moto3 for one more year. But that's the end of his lightweight career. Then he has to move on to bigger bikes. So yeah. do you stay on and not get as good a, a not get as good a situation as you've had over the last two years, and yeah. hope that your bit of experience can make the difference, or do you move to Moto Two? But to move to Moto Two, you need to bring quarter of a million to the table. Oh. Not that many riders have two hundred fifty k sitting around, and that's yeah. where the issues start to start to come for a lot of guys. That's to get you in the door too. That's without taking salaries or. Or well, that, that, else, that's, yeah. that's where like someone like you know riders like Tom Ludy are always interesting because Ludy's a world champion. He's earned quite well during his career, but he's always been able to bring sponsors with him as well to teams. Yeah. So he obviously takes his money from that. Same as someone like Sandro Cortese was the same again, double world champion, but he yeah. was able to bring big sponsors to the table to get him good rides as well. And you know, there's not too many teams out there that are saying you know we rate you on the basis of what you can do for us on track. A lot of the time it is, are you able to, to do something to help us with our spares budget because we're going to need it through the year? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just completely opposite of, of how we really think and operate in the U.S. And it's part of the shock, I think, in, and, and a little part of the reason why you don't see a lot of Americans racing in Europe because it's like, no, you know, we don't really reward just great riding. It just depends on who you are and what sponsors you come with at a certain level. And I think we have the attitude here. It's like, no, you earn your ride, right? Like you just go out there, you prove your point, and then someone's going to open up their wallet and pay you for your services. And it's uh, it's a bit of a shock. And, and even fans from the US don't understand it entirely. I think that's where someone like Rocco Landers is an interesting one, because I remember when someone was explaining to me how much money he was potentially earning from, you know, bonuses and whatever the contingencies are for different mm-hmm. manufacturers. And you're thinking... That's you know that's big money to be earning compared to what a lot of guys are earning, whether they're racing in the British Championships or even you know some of the guys in the smaller classes in the World Championships. Like there's there's money to be made in the US, and that's why you know riders like Loris Baz used it as a you know a good fallback option whenever there wasn't a World Championship ride available. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a you know when you look at a Rocco situation, his dad and the people they had around him. That I mean, they're working twenty four seven to keep him on track when he was doing both classes and. And then on the off weekends, they're going and racing other places as well um, and collecting some of that contingency. So I'm sure you have to, it, the, the amount of volume it takes for you to actually start seeing a return on that is, and plus he was winning every weekend. So it was good for Rocco. That helps. It's a, that helps. Yeah, there's a definitely bit. a situation there where it's going to work for the guy that's winning every weekend. It might not work as well for the other guy. So MotoGP back in action September 12th, but I know Greg wants to get on with this next subject. Yeah, because let's preview some World Superbikes. Steve English, what is going on this weekend for you and work? Well, yes. I'm going to be I'm going to be flat out busy because we're back to having 300 Supersports and Superbike on track. Oh, you are and, the full, uh, full game. Well, we got the we got we got the the full English this weekend, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's it's going to be exciting because we've got the best championship battle I think we've ever had in World Superbikes. You know, everyone looks at Bayless against Edwards. But when you look back at that season, how many great races were there actually between the two riders? Every mm. single one of them. 
apparently yeah, right. every single one of them <laughs> Everyone. whenever everyone's <laughs> looking back you know at Imola and that's about it you know there yeah, was there was point. big margins between them for most of the season because Bayless was class at the start of the season Edwards was yeah. class at the end of the season and that's where the championship and they ended was, up clashing in the last race of the year yeah that's a, yeah it's and, and it was play. it was fantastic I think like maybe Sugo in about 98 or something like that was the last time we had this many really good riders closely matched I think that was where you had like Foggy, Sly, Keeley Courser, maybe mm-hmm. even Haga as well. That year, all going to the last round with a chance. And More this year, we could easily too. end up with something like that. You know, we've got Johnny in top rack level on points. Scott's the form rider coming through. He's obviously going to be incredibly motivated to <laughs> stick it to Ducati, and you know, it, it it sets up really nicely. I think that when you look at it, uh, my my question to you is is I mean, when you look at these two guys level on points. Um, I'm just not ready to give in the fact that 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 Ray isn't going to come out on top of this thing. I think I've got um, a couple friends like Top Racks doing it this year. This and that. I, I got one word for you. Uh, I got two words for you, Jason. Here we, uh, here we go. France and rain. I haven't seen the forecast, Steve. I don't know if you know the forecast. I haven't. I haven't looked at it. I looked at it last night. What What's going to happen? And I never do this. I never do this. But it's typical France. Looks like it's going to be typical French weekend, doesn't it? Steve? Okay, so. This could be the deciding Absolutely. championship because Top Rack is still untested in full rain conditions. Steve, I'll go ahead. You got your hand up. I know what you're thinking. It's, go ahead. <laughs> it's, like, it. it's like I'm back in school, guys. Please, please, sir. Please, yeah, please. Call it. on me. I Call on it. me. No, I got it. I love it. I'll tell you one thing about Top Rack. I think it was at Donington Park. He went out in the wet and he loved it. And he said, he came yeah. back in, he talked to his crew chief and he said, I'm not afraid of riding in the rain anymore. Because he used to always be, oh no, I'll Uh-oh. wait for it to dry. I'll wait for it to get a bit better and then I'll go out. I'll wait for other guys to go out on track. Now he says he wants to be the first guy out on track when it's wet. He wants to be out there testing himself. He wants to get better at it. He knows that the only way he's going to win a world championship is by maintaining that consistency all the way through. He needs to do that in all conditions. And now he feels like he could do it in all conditions. So the, until he does it in a race, it's a big question mark. But in Aragon, he was able to come away with top five finishes in the wet as well. So, you know, he's not that far off at night. But that wasn't like wet, wet. Like that, you know, was it? I mean, Aragon wasn't like, it was crazy Everyone's conditions. Everyone's out there on wet tires except for Scott Reddick. Yeah, so. but, but it's different. Listen, if it's a different animal when you when you have that nice little layer. And I'm just saying it's raining, raining, and you have to go out on full wets and you put your knee down and there's rooster tails coming off. I'm just saying it's a little bit different. It could be anyway. I just but, think it's going to be an interesting. I'll tell you what, if it's, you, yeah. you only have to look but, to Magni last year. And how treacherous the conditions were in the wet. Oh, I think if you, if you remember, Gerloff had a massive crash coming out of the, the flip flop, maybe the Nuremberg yep. chicane into the 180, and he yep. didn't do anything wrong. We saw loads of riders having big slides through there. Johnny had a few. You know, Magni can catch out anyone. So yep. maybe Top Rack being a little bit uh, overconfident in the conditions might Could catch him. him out. Or maybe it'll be where he's building himself up in the race as well. So we'll wait and see. But I'm. I refuse to rule Top Rack out of anything because he's been so no, I'm impressive not saying, this year. I'm oh, saying that yeah, no, this yeah. weekend's going to be a telling sign if the guy's got all the pieces put together to make the complete puzzle. I've That's done a lot of laps around that place in the rain. And I've done a lot of laps around that place in the rain at night, which is really, <laughs> truly miserable. Okay? Lunatic. Um, but there are places on that track. Um, back in the day, obviously, it's probably, I think it's been repaved, I think, maybe since I've been. I can't remember, but... I think that uh, it's really weird because there's places on that track where the grip's really good. And then there's like one or two, three spots where it's really shit. And, you know, when you think about 
pushing the limits for 26 laps or whatever it is they do around there. I don't know, Steve, you, you know better than I do. It's, um, I'll know it's, by Sunday. Probably Sunday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's no. on a piece of paper. It'll yeah, tell you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With a graphic it's, on TV. It, oh, okay. We're going we're gonna to have 26 now, laps in this race. All right. <laughs> and I'll tell you another couple things that Top Rack does have going for him. He's got a couple bullets in the chamber with, I think, with Locatelli and with Gerloff. I think they're the two guys that have proven that they can run a pace. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think that those two guys could be guys that could be spoilers as well. Yes, in the back of the room. Steven? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen, though, to know what your guy's perception is of Gerloff over the last few rounds because he, like Jay, you can say that top rack's got a couple of, <laughs> couple of bullets in the gun. I don't think I've, I've seen anyone look as gun shy as girl off over the last okay. few rounds. Well, that's it. So this is, this is a massive weekend for him to yeah. be able to nope. show that he can, he can make that step again. Let me tell you how I look at it. Okay. After what happened at Assen, he had the big sit down. They, they sat him down and said, listen, like, you cannot do it. I mean, no matter what, no matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter whatever, we've already proven that we're going to have you around. We They signed the contract right before Aston, and then he goes out and does that. I mean, does the contract get signed if that happened before? I, I really don't know. The thing is, is that the last two rounds, watching him going to turn one at most, the poor guy was like, everybody go by me. I will pick you off as we go. I don't want to be in the limelight. I mean, you said it absolute best. And I actually said it on the podcast. You said what Garrett needs to do here is come in here and finish three, six place, three times. And I think he had two, six places and an eighth at most. And then you go to another track that you, these are the, the last two tracks, Steve, and you tell us, I think that in order for you to get to the front, you had to be more aggressive at these last two racetracks. They were kind of club racetracks. They weren't really like the, the Aragons and, and some of the other places that you see as, as, real world-class circuits in my opinion um and and i listened to the your, your guys's podcast and you guys talked about navarra being a little bit better than maybe the most but i thought they were both kind of club racetracks they hard to pass on promote aggression and Gerloff did not want to have any part of that but i do think that if top rack's leading and ray's there in second or third or fourth and garrett's anywhere near his biggest payback to yamaha will be to beat ray maybe not yeah, go after top rack but to beat ray I think that's fair enough. And I would say that the last two tracks certainly wouldn't be Grand Prix style tracks. But I think it's yeah. also quite good that we went to them because Superbikes needs to be a little bit different as well. And now you've mm-hmm. got a bit more of a test and it's up to, you know, Moss, I think was a track where the rider could make a big difference. And I think in a normal set, set of circumstances, those last two rounds probably would have suited Gerloff. And I want to see him yep. get back to the front because he's exciting. You know, fair yep. enough. We have to be critical whenever riders make mistakes. Yeah. But, like yep. I, I like the fact that he's willing to do those things because yep. it makes it interesting for us to watch. I think he's a, a super fast rider. He's really talented. He's clearly at a MotoGP level in terms of that ability. And then yep. it's a question of the mentality. And I think what's going to be interesting to see from him is if he really is all or nothing. Because the last two rounds showed that whenever he's made that step back, he hasn't been able to dial himself back up to be a little bit more aggressive it's either been full on everything you got barroom brawl or else yep. sitting at the back seat in the church and yeah. i think that's where he needs to be able to be able to find a balancing point because all these all these riders and world superbikes are cameron bobier they're all absolute <clears throat> world-class talents that you know when they were coming up through the national stages were winning championships when they were coming up in super sport bikes or the grand prix paddock were able to win races they're all at that same level and I think that that's, for me, is the big challenge for someone like Gerloff, where you go from being able to focus all your attention on one guy to then having to focus it on 
12, 13 guys that are all at the same level as you. And I think that's probably yep. been the biggest thing that takes time to learn in super bikes compared to whenever you're coming over from Moto America. And maybe it took those those knocks for him to be able to understand that and he'll be able to, to bring it back over the next few rounds because we all want to see it. And I think he yep. can do it. It's just a case of whether or not he, he can he can deal with the pressure that comes from it because I think the most frustrating thing for him is that every time he sat down with the media for the last three rounds, the first question's been related to those kind of incidents. He yeah. wants people to move on from that, yeah, but they're not going to move on from it, you know. And and that's that's the biggest issue he's going to have. He just needs that race where he just goes up there and fights in the top five, keeps his nose clean, has a good race, kind of starts to gain the respect of the riders around him again. I think Garrett will be just fine. I think Locatelli's been really impressive though, and I know his crew chief Andrew Pitt real well. Um, I'm I'm eager to get over there when I get a chance to get over, just to kind of see the feeling like when you're in the paddock as opposed to watching it on TV. But Locatelli's really come on strong, deserves his place back where he's going to be next year. And he'll be a championship contender, I think, next year. No Locke, question. Locker looks great. You know, and he shows yeah. how good the Yamaha is. The Yamaha is yeah. clearly a very forgiven bike. Clearly the most forgiven bike out there. And that's probably actually probably part of the reason where we've seen Gerloff have so many incidents. Because whenever he's out there on his own in practice and qualifying, he's able to collect the bike from some of the little errors, you could say. Whereas once he's in the pack and you're battling with someone, maybe you don't quite have that same margin for error. But the Yamaha clearly gives a rider that confidence, you know, and Locatelli's your proof of that because yeah. he's come in. Estorelli was really good, but we thought, you know what? Estoril is one of those tracks that suits the Yamaha. So, you know, fair play to him. He's done a good job there. Just like Rinaldi did a good job in Mizano. He made it work for himself there. But it was when we went to Assen, Most, Navarra, and he's been in the top five, top six for every single race that you're looking yeah. at it and saying, you know what? This guy's legit. And I think that's what's quite interesting because obviously he comes from a Moto3 background. He was a good good Moto3 rider. He was mm. a decent Moto2 rider and then gets his opportunity in Supersport last year. And he was just a better rider than everyone else in the Supersport yeah. class and he dominated it. But he then got an opportunity to step up and it was up to him this year to really step up to the plate. And he did that. He's looked really good. Works really well with Andrew Pitt. Works well with Top Rack as well, which I think is the interesting thing. Yeah, I you think that's a great see, key too. I, I think it's class because Top Rack's going to the other side of the box, giving him tips, trying to make him better. Because Top Rack's not afraid of anyone. He thinks he's better than everyone. So he's yep. more than happy to give some tips because he doesn't believe that you know the other rider is actually going to be able to do it better than him. But if he's yep. able to get in there and be amongst the other riders, it's great news for him. So Top Rack wants to help him. Pity is, well, you know JP. But he's incredibly him. competitive. Like all yep. he wants to do is win. It doesn't matter if you yep. were sitting playing cards with him. He wants to destroy you because that's the mentality it takes to be a double world champion. That's and right. He's a world he, champion. He yeah. gives that to his riders, and I think yep. that's where it's really interesting to see Yamaha because they've got two crew chiefs, Petty and Phil Marin, that are both working in very different ways to get the the best out of their riders, and. You know, Yamaha has been able to show with Gerloff as well and Les Pearson that you've got three different riders, totally different styles, all of them able to get to the front. And that's where I think it's been really positive for them. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think uh, when you look at some of the other, obviously, Redding, it's pretty interesting when you think about it. Um, he's 38 points back, I believe, is the number. And for them to get away from him this early, I, I personally, I, I really rate the guy. I think, I think he had some kind of weird races at the beginning of the year. And to think that he's only 38 points back, to me, I've seen him sliding along the ground a couple times this year, and I've seen him finishing way back at 
it, it almost feels like he should have been 60 points back, but he's only 38 points back. He's not that far. These two guys start getting into each other, and we get some of the other players coming along. I mean, he could be right in the middle of this thing, and I think his motivation to take the number one plate and slap it on the front of a BMW next year is, <laughs> is probably pretty high. Yeah, and I think what's interesting with Reading is I can understand why the relationship broke down because when I started to hear rumors about what was happening with Reading, it was at Ducati. <sighs> uh, sorry, it was at Donington. And uh, that's when the rumor around the paddock was Ducati were offering him half his wages for next year. And it was basically, we're making an offer to you, but we don't want you. And yeah. there was no way he was going to accept that. There was no way his manager was going to let him accept it. And clearly the reasoning behind that was Bautista was in their ear saying, I'd like to be back on your bike and I'll ride for Half clearly, the wages we've offered very you. little, very little. <laughs> yeah. I'll do it for yeah. bonuses because I know I can yeah. win on that bike and I'm fed up with what's happened at Honda. And Reading was coming there. And I got after, my money in the bank. Well, I got that's my it. Honda money in the bank, right? He, he's done well for himself. No matter what happens yeah. over the, the time he's with Ducati, over the course of his superbike career, he's earned really good money. So he was happy to go back. Ducati were looking at Reading and they were saying, well, you know, in Mizano, you were outperformed by Rinaldi. You crashed out of Donning, uh, out of Estoril. You've struggled at a Donington. few other rounds. Yeah. You know, Donington was a disaster for him. So disaster, yeah. there was a lot that was working against him. And then obviously, Asin, Moss, and Navarra, he's been able to show again that he's got that speed, that he's got that ability. But for Ducati, it was clearly a little bit too little too late. And then for Reading, whenever you're offered something like that, at the end of the day, if, if and uh, I'm not saying this would happen, Greg, but if Moto America came to you and said, we'll give you half your wages for next year, I think chances are you'd probably say, I might go looking for some archery work or I might go looking for <laughs> yeah. whatever else I can find because we're yeah. all human. You, you, you know the value that's placed in you by your employee, by your employer, by the size of the packet that comes in front of you. And writing clearly wasn't valued by Ducati at that point. Maybe if they were making the decision today, they'd look at it very differently. But, you know, you make, you make your decisions on the day and, Reading had to, he had to reject it. And the best offer he could get was clearly from Ducati, from BMW. So he ends up going there next year. I think it's a shame because I, I want to, I want to see Scott Reading on a Ducati. I want to see as many yep. fast riders at the front. I want to see Alvaro Bautista back in a Ducati as well. But you don't want to lose someone like Reading to go to BMW where they've made progress this year, but there's still an awful lot of work to be done to be able to catch up to the three leading manufacturers. The Reading thing is just Lorenzo all over again from MotoGP. I mean, the fact that, you know, we heard the same thing when he went to Mugello, he's getting offered nothing to stay around. Like Ducati doesn't really want you, but we're going to throw this little like, hey, we'll keep you if you do this. Then he goes out and starts winning. Arguably, I think that if he stays on with Ducati the following year, he gives Marquez a run for his money. That never happened. He goes to the Honda and never heard from again. I fear for Reading that he goes to this BMW and it just seems like they're just missing a little something, doesn't it? I mean, it just doesn't seem like they can just, they're like in the Honda boat. They, it seems like they've got a great package to start with. Uh, the BMW we know is very, very fast, but there's just something missing that isn't allowing them to get to that next. And Vandemark is still really fast. You don't, well, he yeah, doesn't just go from but, the speed he had last year to this year and be like, "What correct. is he done?" And, yeah. and, and I understand why they're stepping aside a little bit from Sykes too. He's been there what for four years now, three years, and you know, obviously, he does great at Navarra, and he's got a point to prove. And I get all that, but I fear for Reading that it's. I mean, I, you know, I don't know when you look at the talent that we've talked about already so far, just within Yamaha, um, there's, there's guys that are going to be tough to beat next year. And I don't know if the BMW is really the mark that's going to help him get to that spot that he needs to be at next year. Yeah. I think it's clear Scott's a step up for BMW. He's, he's a better all round rider than Tom Sykes right now. And yep. you bring in a guy that's at the top of his game. 
coming from Ducati as well. That can help develop the bike, bring it forward a little bit. You put him alongside Van der Mark. Both of those guys are getting well paid. So BMW aren't afraid of opening the checkbook. They were very keen on talking to Jonathan Ray last year before he re-signed with Kawasaki. So they want to be able to try and make all those big steps. But it's also all about the full all-round package. And yep. Scott might be a better rider than Tom Sykes right now, but is he enough of a step to really be able to bring them that bit closer? For I think everyone looking at the results, looking at the data, you'd have to say probably not yep. because BMW have to make that big of a step. But maybe it's it's one of those things where you put him onto that bike and it just brings them a little bit closer and then they can make those steps in the future. Yeah. Mm. Well, then, by the way, yeah. everybody, if you want to watch World Superbike Racing, go to worldsbk.com and just sign up for the package. I know it costs a little bit of money, but oh, the value the you get it is intense. You get to hear Steve English and his entire commentary crew yakety yak it up. It's good stuff. But worldsbk.com is where you're going to find those links. So it's all tied up at the top of that championship. It's yeah, amazing. but I got a couple more questions before we just move on because we know Alex is a little bit hurt. It's been kind of swept under the rug a little bit, but we know he's dealing with a couple issues. Um, Lowe's, he's talking Alex about Lowe's, people. sorry. Yeah. And uh, Greg was always on me about last names and stuff. I just get to the point where I talk to Steve like he's my friend. There's nobody else here, Greg. So I understand that. Yeah. Um, anyways, the thing is, is that we know it, it seems like the test went well for him at Portimao. Uh, the Kawasaki did a one-day test here last week. It seemed like things went a little bit better for him. They found a couple things. It seemed like both riders found a couple things. Um I think Manny Kors is a track he's done well at. I think this will be a big test for Alex this weekend um, to kind of know where he's going to be for the rest of the year. I would say as well, like obviously Greg is half commentator, half producer for you, JP. Yeah, he, he should is. really be he's saying Alex Lowe's on the number 22 green Kawasaki and get the exactly. whole thing out. All right, our thanks to Steve English for joining us. Unfortunately, his laptop died, so we're not going to get some closing comments from Steve, but... Great insight. So, Jay, let's go ahead and move on with the podcast to our last little segment, which is going to be, let's talk about uh, Pro I had, so I had so many questions for him, though, still. I know. I know. I what are know, you going to do? Because I wanted to know, like, with Dominic Agurta, you know, his name's not even mentioned. But he, we'll get Steve back on the podcast. We'll get yeah. Steve back on the podcast. Literally, well, what's your, everybody, what's he, was at a, he was what's at a truck stop. He was at a truck stop. <laughs> truck stop outside with his laptop battery, and it died. What's my view on what? Dominic Agurta? I mean, he's dominated. He's literally dominated 600 Supersport. He's a guy with obviously a ton of experience. It, wouldn't you think that his name is on the menu is also like with like maybe a Honda ride or something? I mean, couldn't he be a guy that they could look at? He's, he's got some uh, got a lot know. of experience. It's kind of weird there, how you just don't look at guys like that, right? But he's dominated. Well, Locatelli dominated last year, and what? now he's done well this year. Yeah, but Locatelli was younger. Agurta's Correct. got a little bit more, you know, he's got a little bit more miles on the tread. And and I think that World Supersport sometimes is looked at as a step backwards. You know what I mean? Yep. For yep, some yep. people in their career, you know, kind of like people are saying, well, after Tony Elias wins the Moto America Championship in 17, why isn't he off to the races? And you have to yep. say, well, because he's kind of been here before. And, and you know, Moto America then wasn't looked at as much as it is now. Um, but anyway, so... He's doing a great job in World Supersport, but I think that there's more factors at play. I mean, there could be sponsors and stuff. I mean, I think you look at him and say, okay, is he ready for the World Superbike step? Do we have to make an investment? I mean, look at the, what Locatelli did and how long it took him to kind of come up to speed. And this is a world we live in of, you know, immediacy, right? Like, I got to get mm-hmm. this instant gratification. My rider, I just hired him. But yeah, I know he doesn't have any experience, but he's got to be on the box in two or three races, right? right. So I don't know. There's right. a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. But um, world, we're, again, World Superbike... 
worldsbk.com. Go check it out. It's so worth it. Racing this weekend. You get three races. Saturday, you have one. On Sunday, you're going to have the Super Pole race and then followed by the full race distance. So check all that stuff out. Uh, Jay, did you get a chance to watch any of the uh, the pro motocross stuff? I watched it all. And not only did I watch it all, but I was... I'm deep in the middle of the, uh, I'm listening to Wygant talk about the stuff on, on their podcast as well. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I think if you start with two fifties, I've said for the last three weeks that I, I think Jet Lawrence is the guy, he's the guy that's going to win. And he's proven that. I mean, he went one, one, obviously this weekend at, um, what they call it? Ironman. It was in Indiana, I believe it was. And he was so dominant G-Dub. I was really bummed. Um, I know you have some time in that paddock, but like J Mart seems like such a good dude. Um, I don't yeah. know him at all, but to see him get hurt again and break his wrist and, you know, it was funny because he was sitting on the back of the medical truck there. Um, and, and the mule, he's sitting on, and he's just talking about his broken wrist. Like, like, yeah, like it's not a big deal. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And I've kind of been there. Because like, Hey, I, I think we need to go over there. Cause this is broken. Like, yeah, can we just it, go over there? I found myself, I mean, laughing, not at a situation, but you know, with how many stupid times I broke my tib fib, like mm-hmm. they get over to me and then like, and they'll be say, they'll say, Jason, you know, are you okay? No, 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 I'm not okay. My tib fibs broke. And it's like, <laughs> it's so non, it becomes something that you're so used to that you're like, and they're like, what your legs broke. Yeah, it's broke. Like, how, how do you know? Well, I, just, I can feel stuff moving. It sucks. And it was like, he was just having a conversation with them and almost smiling going, yeah, my wrist is broke. Like I got to get over there and have them set this thing or whatever. I feel bad for the guy. Cause he's obviously amazing, but when yeah. you look at the 250 class right now, uh, Jet Lawrence is, in my opinion, head and shoulders above. Well, These yeah. guys are talking about him being – they're talking about Cooper being a little bit sick. They're talking about uh, maybe him having a jammed thumb. I, I heard Mathis talking a little bit about that. Um, but, I mean, none of that matters. Jet Lawrence is just too good right now, I feel. Yeah. And, Your I mean, feelings? that's part of – luck is part of the championship, isn't Correct. it, Jason? I mean, I, it really does. Yes. There's got to be some in there. And, and for Cooper, who led most of this championship, Jet Lawrence now takes it over – and, you know, I mean, it's been like, what, second, second win, second, second win, win in those last bunch of races since since Washougal 2 for Jet Lawrence. And it's been mostly the opposite for Justin Cooper, who in that same span since Washougal second moto has had two wins. So, yeah, but 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 finishing a lot lower and scoring less points. And and that's what it takes. I mean, there's only what four motos left in the season, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's only four it's, motos left and he's got an 11 point lead now. Um and yeah, I just think it's, uh, for me, when you look at the results and you look at things that are going on, I like to see, I like seeing Shimoda up there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. your boy. So yeah. I think I, I like seeing him, um, up there, uh, get, got good starts. You know, so much of motocross, isn't it, Greg? Just depends on that start. When you got 40 riders on the gate. Um, I, I know you probably haven't done too much. Like I've seen you on a motocross bike and it's for another episode, like when we want to talk about comedy sketches and things, but, um, horrendous. <laughs> But I'll tell you that the the funnest part about Moto to me is being on that line, knowing that you're on the line with you know twenty or thirty, in this case forty other riders. Um, it's a, quite a thrill to get the whole shot on all of those guys. And I think for Shimoto, you know, you hear these guys talk about we went testing this week, and nearly always centers around got to get the bike off the line better to get up at the front. Yeah, but you know when you come to the 450 class, I mean that was a bit of a different story because. Eli Tomac got a couple crappy starts and he just started working his way through the field. And it was just like, oh yeah, there's Tomac. There he goes. It, it just had that grind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. he goes 2 1 to win the overall because Dylan Ferrandis goes 1 2 
But in moto, as most of you know by now, whatever the result is from the second moto is going to <clears throat> determine tiebreakers. Yeah. So they both score 47 points. So Ferrandis comfortably in that championship lead. But Tomac looked great. Ferrandis, huh. you know, Cooper Webb all of a sudden kind of showed up and he led the race for a little while. And that's great for Talk you know, the Red Bull KTM team. Or something like that that I mm-hmm. think kind of set the internet on fire. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, because... You know, he said, you know, he says up on the podium, you know, we changed the chassis. And I think that production rules are kind of stated that you're not allowed to change the chassis. So I don't know exactly what he changed or what he did, but. Yeah, but, but some yeah, people, kind of some people will say they've changed the chassis could mean, and I'm not, I'm not, again, but, you know, in my experience as a pit reporter, riders talk different languages. Changing the chassis could have mean they made a big, you know, adjustment to the. Yes. To the geometry of the bike, or well, a big he, shock he changer. He said they changed the they changed the frame, or they frame. Did something. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It was okay. something, oh. and I can't remember the exact quote right now, but um, it was something like that. And when I watched it, I was like, "Oh, well, interesting." Hey, look, it could have been the so, fact that he'd been riding the same actual frame all year, and that you know they just changed out the frame. Yep. Maybe it's that a by a b bike situation that we've spoken about. Anyway, I'm not trying to justify it. Whatever. Let people go crazy on the internet. Yeah, Who yeah, cares? Yeah. yeah. Uh, with a, with a couple of motos to go, I mean, in terms of this championship, Ferrandis has four thirty nine to Ken Roxon's three eighty nine, and Roxon again gave ton of point backs to back to Ferrandis. To me, there's only what twenty one points between second place Roxon and Tomac, and Tomac I'm sure wants to have his Kawasaki swan song off with at least second place because Ferrandis looks like he's going to wrap this thing up. And Jet Lawrence took over the championship in the two fifty class and now leads that one by a couple. So, yeah. I mean, at least, you know, at the beginning of the season, it kind of looked like another all Yamaha affair this year, which from everything I've heard has caught Yamaha on its back foot. They weren't expecting all these great results and all these bonuses that they have to pay people, but they're happy to do it at this point. Um, are, so, they, are they happy yeah. to do it, you think? Well, I, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm sure they are. As long as you're putting the win ads in there, you know? But I mean, other than that, when you look at the, you know, basically you look at series around the world, there's a Honda leading something, and that is the 250 mm-hmm. Pro Class here right now in in america and i think jet lawrence is i think he's going to be like he's going to be the real deal and ferrandis is so good and anyways i'm loving watching all the motocross stuff this year and uh, i know we went a little long on our podcast today so that's worth it steve was great pro motocross but but yeah yeah all right look ahead to this weekend's racing and our race calendar and what we're going to be talking about next week of course world Superbike. Uh, but Pro Motocross is in Pala, California, and AMA Pro Flat Track heads to Springfield for the mile. They have a couple of those this weekend. AMA National Speedway is in Nichols and Green, New York. I believe Green first, Nichols second. So if you're in that part of New York, go check out some Speedway. That'll be cool. BSB is racing up Snetterton or Snetherton, Snetterton. Snetterton. It looks like it's like one of the tracks in England I'd really like to ride. It looks like a good one there. Yeah, it looks like really yeah. good. Yeah. NHRA Pro Stock at Indy. I know you'd be interested in that, JP, because I know you'd it. like to watch this. Yeah, I, I tuned in to watch uh, John Force get knocked out of uh, Brainerd. I did tune in and see Brainerd. Did so you I watch, watch Jamie. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, I think it'd be so fun for us to both go to one of those, because, you know, with Brian there, too, who came to our booth, and obviously we know Jamie. But Greg, I got a great in there, too, because Alan Johnson, who's like, you know, NHRA Hall of Fame, world-class tuner. He lives in Santa Maria. He's always at my club playing golf. Um, I, I played a lot of golf with his daughter, who also drag races herself. So... There's a lot of little ties there with NHRA that I have now. And I just talked to him last week. I said, I just want to be there when you're warming one of those things up. He's there in top <laughs> fuel. And I said, I would, I, you know, 
it's you know, I know you're a speed junkie, obviously. Um, Dude, I'd love to go. We just got to look at the calendar and see when we can go. Well, the one that I can go to that maybe we can't go to is the same weekend as Valencia. So mm. that might be a problem. Yeah, uh, there might be some more stories on that. Uh, yep. Around the world, by the way, ISD is in Italy and FIM Supermoto is there as well. So that's it for our podcast. Jason, you have the final word and I know you want to thank Steve English again. Well, first off, we got to thank Steve English and just got to make sure you're sending in the check, right? I'm out of checks. You're sending him a check? <laughs> no, listen, having Steve on here is a treat for us. Hopefully everybody enjoyed that. A lot of racing going on. Um, we got World Superbike, obviously, as you said, this weekend. I'm excited. And then right after that, the weekend after that, not only do we have MotoGP, but we got us in Jersey and Barber. I mean, can you believe it's the end of the year already? Don't forget, and, uh, Banquet Monday yeah. night. So you better be there, buddy. You better no, not book I your ticket home until Tuesday. I already got the I already got the okay from the bosses because I'm leaving Monday right after Barber and I'm flying straight to Spain. Oh, you are okay. So you, yep. you're going to miss the banquet. I'm out. I, I wanted to be there, but I wanted to make sure that they, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure it was cool that I wasn't there. Yeah, it makes um, sense. Yeah, are you I, going to I, Spain for World Superbike? Yeah, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to going to go to Jerez and Portimao. So uh, back to and, back. And what's going to happen with the podcast? Asshole, I'm be gone for a month. Oh, now you call me names on like. On a public channel, it's just not even nice. Don't See, worry I, about this, it. This is how he talks to me, people. This I'm is just how he thinking about, when about who I'm going to get to replace you because I'm not doing it by myself like I did when you were in Australia. Well, I'm I'm going to be available. We're going to do it. If Steve English can pull over at a truck stop in France. Exactly. Thank I you. I will. I am going to figure out a way to make this work, and I will take my mic, computer, and everything else with me, and hopefully, I'll be doing it. From the tenth floor, overlooking a golf course and the ocean, somewhere in Portimao, um, and doing the podcast with you. But we'll figure that out when we get to it. 